0: This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 476, a conversation with Chuck Dixon. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode number 476, and I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Uh, This is a a great episode that I think you're really going to enjoy. It's another conversation with Chuck Dixon, who was previously on the show uh, about two years ago. Um, And uh, before, we kind of did a bit more of a... General, kind of going through his career in comics, Uh, this time it was a lot more targeted. We spent a lot of time talking about uh, the recent launch of Bane Conquest, a 12-issue maxi-series being published by DC Comics that he's doing with Graham Nolan, uh, his partner in crime, and uh, otherwise known as the uh, other co-creator of Bane. Um, so we got to sit down and have a nice chat about that book, and we're hopefully going to have him back when the, the series is ended. Uh, but the first issue came out at the first week of May, um, so you should definitely check that out. It's, it's really, really well done. Um, I'm enjoying it. How they've been approaching the character was interesting to have the conversation with him because um, when you have a character like Bane who you know has is such a prominent presence and has been around and has had a lot of different versions, um, I mean. I mean, God, there's been so many different types of him, um, uh, types of Bane. We've seen a lot of different writers write him. Um, he was in Secret Six. Obviously, right now, he's been written by Tom King. Uh, he just played a you know, prominent role in the first you know, year of uh, stories that were uh, written by Tom King on Batman. Um, so now we're kind of having Bane fronting his own book, which is kind of interesting. I mean, we don't always get to see villains fronting books. Uh, you know, it's it happens here and there. It's not like it doesn't happen, but... It's not necessarily the most common thing either, and it's interesting to have it happen. So uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. I wanted to do a bit of a shout-out to some of the people who uh, submitted questions from the Marvel Masterworks forum. Some of them I was able to name-check in the episode. Some I didn't specifically ask the question, or I kind of um, integrated it into an existing question or a line of dialogue that we were already kind of going along. Um, But I do want to make sure to thank the following. So I want to thank uh, uh, Haytil, Gagal, Grantor, uh, Shagmu, Mr. Raffles, uh, Shatsi, um, I think Elwin Muncie Jr and I think that was it uh, so I want to thank everyone for submitting questions for this interview again it was it was an entertaining uh, conversation to be sure um, and sometime later in the year we will have Graham on the show as well uh, originally we were going to have a bit of a um, a nice kind of interview with, with both Chuck and Graham um, there's positive and negatives to not being able to do that just because of scheduling mostly on my end um, the benefit is that we'll be able to go do a bit more of a deep dive into Graham's work and his history with comics that we may not have been able to do as easily in a a joint interview um, and even with Chuck we went a little bit deeper on some of the stuff that maybe we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise so uh, instead of having one episode you have two to listen to so uh, just in terms of uh, quantity um, it's better this way uh, anyways thank you for uh, joining us for this episode you can email me at comic shenanigans at gmail.com like the show on facebook rate and review us on itunes subscribe to us on itunes and you can also listen to us on stitcher now without further ado we'll jump right into the episode as I sit down to speak with Chuck Dixon welcome back to Comic Shenanigans. This is your second visit. <laughs> it's actually, it's, it's crazy. I was looking at it. has been almost uh, almost two years exactly. It's, uh, I think it was June 2015 we last chat, chatted, and I think, you know, a lot's different now. Now you're writing a, a maxi-series for DC. Um, how did that happen? How did, where did this, I should say, like, I remember I, I checked the solicitations for, for May, and I was like, a new Bane maxi-series, 12 issues. Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan, where's this coming from?
1: Well, obviously, we knew about it for a long time, <laughs> and it's kind of a boring inside baseball journey to this place. But
0: people love those uh, stories. I love inside yeah, baseball. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's basically you know uh,
1: we were looking to do something, and you know we wanted it to be bane centric, and we didn't want it to be a nostalgicory. We didn't want to just do a little itty bitty project. So we worked it out with DC to let us do a you know something more significant. You know, a twelve issue, as we used to call them, maxi series. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and um, um, they've—it's been a great experience so far. You know, our editors have been very hands off and uh, cooperative, and they're digging what we're doing. And you know, uh, Graham has got a uh, extra long deadlines on the art, so he's really able to dig in and, and, and do his absolute best. That's awesome. So, uh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's just started issue six. I saw pages today from the beginning of it, and uh, I just handed in issue nine last week. So, you know, like I said, we've known about this for a while.
0: Absolutely. Wow. I, I, I mean, obviously, yeah, you, you, if you know about it, you can kind of hit the ground running and make sure you got a lot in the can as opposed to a monthly book. But I'm surprised you're already that far ahead.
1: Well, it's me because I'm always far ahead. Yeah,
0: true. And, uh, <laughs>
1: but, but Graham has been, you know, she's almost a year. Working on this, we, we nobody can say we can't keep a
0: secret. <laughs> no, w- I, I gotta ask. Like, so I, I read the first issue, loved it. How did you? I mean, first of all, going into the book or before you started writing on it, um, how did you feel about how Bane's portrayal had changed over the years, specifically kind of in the last five years in the New Fifty Two, and how did you approach writing the character again?
1: Well, we, we you know, we weren't. We, we we weren't told to pay attention to
0: anything in the new fifty two, so we didn't. Okay, and
1: we just we just kind of took it like no time had passed, and uh, you know we always had more Bane stories in us. You know, Graham and I love the character, and we're really invested in it, and I think we understand it better than anybody else. Um, and uh, certainly from talking to other writers, um, you know, uh, the, the the iterations pre fifty um, two there were stories by Scott Beatty, Gail Simone, and Tony Bedard, and each one of them was gracious enough to contact me and ask me questions about Bane to make sure they had an understanding of the character. So, um, you know, it's kind of like I never left because I've either either been advising in the background or whatever on the character since then. You know, and uh, it's, uh, you know, so Graham and I just went back to doing what we do. Mm -hmm. You know, know, and, you know, this series is kind of We're, we're calling it a spin-off it, It's canon to current continuity But it's kind of outside of current continuity We're not really touching on any events Uber events they're dealing with in the other books Which was an understanding from the beginning That uh, Bane is you know, Bane's mission is obviously secret So he's not spreading the word to the JLA or anything So there's no reason for other characters To become involved except in a, you know, in a We're, we're going to obviously have some appearances By other bad characters
0: What's it like? I mean, one thing that really struck me immediately upon reading the first issue is, uh, is actually getting to kind of see Bird and Trog and Zombie again, because I feel like they've been criminally underused or forgotten along the years, but they were an integral part to those original stories. Yeah, they were pretty much only Graham and
1: I would use them. I think they appeared here and there in, in Nightfall, but only as, like, foils for someone to, for Bane to talk to. But Graham and I always wanted to develop them further, and this series gives us, you know, we've got 12 issues. There's a chance to develop the characters, which is what we're doing. They're very, each one of them has an individual relationship with Bane. You know, it's different. They're not just henchmen. You know, they're not just nameless. We we, you know, we learn to care about them, and we understand, you know, how they relate to Bane and how he relates to them. So they're his, um, you know, they're, they're his wingmen. They're his backup guys. They're his friends. Mm-hmm. So...
0: Now, I, I, when I originally spoke with uh, Doug Mensch he kind of said that, uh, I guess, the genesis of the idea of having, you know, these kind of three kind of henchmen-like characters, at least there it was originally pitched, kind of came from him. How did you end up kind of developing what these characters became back then and then obviously using them again now? How did they become well, you the, know, the bird, zombie, and trog that we're used to? Well,
1: well back then, you know, we we had Nightfall going on and we had everything else and even though Bane was a central figure in Nightfall there wasn't a lot of room to explore his henchmen other than making sure that they were individual and memorable I mean, everybody remembers them and everybody remembers their names um, so um, we didn't get that much chance to develop them but, but like in any creative project there's all this stuff that goes unsaid you know that, that there was an understanding that Graham and I had about the characters that this, this series allows us to bring out so the readers can see it. They can see what, what our understanding of these characters was. And I think, I think some of that, the fact that in our minds they had these deep backgrounds, I think some of that resonated to, to make them memorable because it seems like everybody remembers them and you know, so many fans are glad to see them back. And, you know, it's been a long time. <laughs> oh,
0: no, for sure. Well, yeah, as I said, like, when I saw them, I was like, oh, sweet. Like, this is this feels like classic Bane just kind of bringing in that classic supporting cast. And I guess in a 12-issue series focusing on the character, you kind of have to have someone to talk to that the reader's going to find interesting as well and not just, you know, again, a talking post.
1: Yeah, and, and unlike a lot of other uh, Batman henchmen, Batman villain henchmen, these guys aren't disposable. These guys, you know, they mean something to Bane. You know, he's not going to, like, you know, like the Joker would kill one of his henchmen just to show what a psycho that he
0: is.
1: (laughs) But that's not going to happen with Bane. You know, these guys had each other's backs in prison. And, you know, that meant a lot. Those those bonds mean a lot to them. It's it's like the bonds made in a a military or Mm
0: -hmm. something. When When you started writing this project or kind of putting it together... Um, was there any of, of the, those kind of three? Was there one you were more excited about writing again? And then as the series has progressed, now you are already on issue nine, um, did you get surprised by maybe one of the other ones being more interesting to write after all? Um, not really, except
1: that, you know, Bird emerges as like Bane's conscience. Uh, he's the one that he can talk to best because, you know, let's face it, Zombie doesn't talk. Hmm. And, and Trog is, uh, he's a more typical thug. Uh, although we show him as kind of <laughs> kind of lovable in this series, in his own strange way, um, but you know, but what what makes them, uh, I think what makes them special is their loyalty to Bane. But but you know, each one we, we'll see you know glimpses of the past and things like that. You know uh, about their first meetings and things like that. But but Bird is kind of the one who's like you know, hey boss, maybe this is a little too nuts even for us. Uh, that kind
0: of thing. <laughs> Now, I have a silly question, and this might be a question more for Graham, but um, th- when we look at Bird, like the other two characters kind of look more or less the way they did before. Zombie, obviously a little bit different, but uh, with Bird, he's got a bit of a haircut, and that definitely makes the character seem and look different. Was that something that was purely from Graham, or did you guys kind of talk about that? Because it feels like it kind of changes something about the character, and I can't even put my finger on it, but when I look at him and when I read him, he feels still the same, but slightly different, almost like he's got a different edge, and I can't explain why. <laughs>
1: Well, Bird was, you know, he had that very '90s haircut with the ponytail and the rest of it, and that, that just simply had to go. It just mm-hmm. doesn't look right now, and um, so you know that's the thing, you know. But Graham gave more of a military style haircut, but other than that, he's the same Bird. I mean, I mean, we never really got into what nationalities guys were or anything else, but the Us Bird was always the American of the group, mm. and uh, I, I don't know what Trog is, and nobody knows what Zombie is, and, and the only contribution I had with Zombie is, is his different look, you know. Graham wanted to do the mouth sewn shut and we'll explain how that works in an upcoming issue Um, uh, but Graham wanted to go for a real zombie look where he's basically looks like he crawled out of a grave and I said that's that's pushing it too far, and we agreed on the uh, the Italian cut suit that he wears now because I thought that was awesome. You know, the, the juxtaposition of this guy, you know, you know, boy, what what, what was that fitting like uh, for that, <laughs> for those suits he wears? I just like the idea that he's like the nattiest of the group, even though he's the most hideous.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Um, one thing I thought was a nice touch and kind of makes sense is, Kind of updating the character, and also with the current technologies, the fact that you know birds got drones now, it just makes sense because in the old, old original one, he actually had birds, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. We, we went for the drone because you know that's what's happening now, and then of course we named the drone uh, Sergio, this first drone Sergio after our good friend Sergio Carriello, who is uh, basically should join Drones Anonymous. This guy, so it's drones.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's too funny. Now, obviously, like we're only an issue in, so there's. I don't want you to give away any surprises, but can you kind of tease certain things that we're going to be doing, maybe in the in the larger scope of things, in terms of where you're going to push Bane as a character and his his, and his uh, compadres.
1: Well, you know, in the the first issue, we you know, Bane realizes that you know um, he uh, there's there's a global existential threat to Gotham that he doesn't quite understand. And uh, this leads him to the idea that he's got to extend his reach beyond Gotham. And then, you know, uh, because Bane grew up in a in an environment, a prison environment, where, you know, to beat Top Dog meant a lot. You, know, you were either at the top or you were nothing. And uh, he realizes now that maybe Gotham's too small for him, uh, that he wants a more global uh, empire. And so he begins challenging all of the established DCU, uh, villain, villainous organizations and uh, anyone you can name he's he's, he's going to go after not only to, to topple them but to basically take their business away and assimilate them into a larger hmm. uh, cartel like global cartel and you know he wants to be top of the heat but um, he runs into a lot of resistance <laughs> to his plans so um, you know there's a it's a huge gang war epic it's a gangster epic it's basically what we're going for
0: cool now, what is it like, you know, kind of making, like, your lead protagonist is a villain. So, obviously, you get to go to places you couldn't necessarily go with, with, a, you know, a typical hero like Batman, etc. Uh, how does that inform your writing or give you additional challenges or freedom? Well, it's, it's like,
1: a, you know, when you see a gangster movie or you see a heist story and you're like, oh, my God, these people are breaking the law, but I sympathize with them. I'm, I'm down with their goals because, you know, I'm seeing the world through their eyes and that's what we're going for. Uh, but we're also going for, you know, uh, challenging people's moral compasses. Because you're like, oh, Bane's such a badass. Bane's so cool. And then on the next page, my like, God, he's a monster. He did the most horrible thing to this person. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like with Tony Soprano. You know, your, your moral compass was set spinning. Because each time you started to like the guy and sympathize with him, you realize this this guy's an animal. And uh, so that's what we're going for with, with Bane. He's, he's not looking to be anybody's sweetheart this series
0: now that being said I did like the sequence in the first issue where um, you have I mean you have Batman's trophy cases have certain things and then Bane has his teddy bear from growing up
1: yeah yeah he's got a real you know relationship with that teddy bear (laughs) uh, because it's the only childhood item you know from his childhood you know this this kid didn't grow up with toys and of course uh, we all know the significance of the bear that it did more than just you know something to cuddle with at night and actually helped him defend himself in prison. So, uh, and and we'll be seeing uh, sort of a recap of that coming up. But um, yeah, the bear the bear meant a lot, and it's I, I just think it's an awesome. Story. Juxtaposition. This big brawny guy who keeps this child a teddy bear.
0: No, absolutely. Like, I, I, it's that juxtaposition. Well, it's both the juxtaposition and what you said before—that you know you have these moments where you sympathize with Bane, and then you're like, "What did he just do? Like, he just—you know—doesn't he? Uh, doesn't he I'm trying to remember the exact uh, page, but cuts off the other guy's, ha- um, the guy's holding the gun, and suddenly it's cut off. Right. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, And then you
1: know, and then he, he obviously you know is is killing the people that he's questioning as he goes along because he doesn't want anybody to know he doesn't want anybody to know the information he's seeking so he can't interrogate people and let them go so he's he's got to murder them as he goes along so he's not he's not a nice guy but but the thing is in Bane's heart and in reality he's an innocent i mean he didn't ask for the things that happened to him in life hmm. and uh, he just reacted to them in sort of a psychotic way it really does make him the the uh, antithesis or dark mirror image of Bruce Wayne You know, he had this tragic childhood incident, you know, being born into prison to a life sentence. And uh, he did his best to deal with
0: it. Now, with Bane kind of, I mean, obviously when you're a writer and you create things, they're kind of like your children. And some people don't want to kind of find out what happened to their children after they left type of thing. Um, (laughs) And as you said, you've been involved in consulting with, you know, certain people having the respect to actually ask, you know, how would Bane kind of react here or how would you handle this? Um, what do you think of other portrayals of the character since you created him? I mean, it's been it's been a, a long time now, what, more than 25 years, right? Or about that? Yeah, yeah, about about 25 years. Yeah,
1: it, it, you know, um, sometimes I think they veer too much toward the henchman or he's an ancillary character rather than, you know, uh, a central figure in a story. But, you know, I mean, look, we don't often see villains as a central figure in a story. I mean, we, we did a miniseries, we did we did the specials with him and we did a miniseries Bane of the Demon with him mm-hmm. and uh, things like that. But but the other people have had to deal with him, you know, either as part of Batman's world or, or part of a large group, you know, part of an ensemble. Uh, you know, and, and you know, they I think they all did a good job. Uh, they all understood where he was coming from, but but I thought his role was a bit diminished because mm-hmm. he wasn't the star. No. You know, Bane by nature you know, uh, by, by nature of his character and everything else wants to be the star of his own book
0: now, um, now this is a question about more modern portrayals that do you, do you feel that he's been dumbed down a little or and maybe this is going towards your point that you know they haven't really maybe let him breathe enough to be the character he's meant to be but he's been kind of given these ancillary roles where he's been as you said kind of diminished and not the the kind of the lead character he means he's meant to be I I don't think he's been
1: dumbed down but I don't think that they explore or exploit uh, uh, his intelligence as much as I'd like to see you know he's a chess player he's a mastermind you know yeah he's a big brute beast of a guy but he is Bruce Wayne's intellectual equal and uh, you know he's a mastermind at at planning stuff you know he's like uh, you know uh, Oriarty, the, the Napoleon of
0: crime. Hmm. I guess that's the part that's always forgotten that he's supposed to be the criminal mastermind. Like As you said, Bruce Wayne's equal intellectually, and that's, I guess, the part that gets forgotten more so.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, you know, and you combine that intellect with his ruthlessness, you know, and he's, you know, one of the most dangerous people in the DCU.
0: Now this is uh, this is a listener question, and maybe this is going too far in the future. But you know, what are your plans beyond Bane Conquest? Are you planning to stay at DC? Uh, you know, are there are other you know crazy long in advance pro, uh, projects you're working on that you can't talk about, or what? What are you kind of th- thinking in the future?
1: Well, you know, freelancers can't really plan to work for any company. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know, I. I I I know that DC's pleased with the series and it's doing very well uh, sales wise Uh, so we'll see what happens but you know uh, neither Graham nor I are really rushing to think about what's next you know because especially for Graham he's got you know a a good long while to continue working on this series so uh, yeah I mean we haven't really approached them they haven't approached us about doing anything uh, beyond this but you know anything's possible but you know, I, I manage to stay busy. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, you know, I'm, I'm currently working on a, uh, doing comic material for a mobile game, and uh, I, I write novels that are available on Amazon. And uh, you know, I, I I work on SpongeBob comics um, <laughs> and create our own stuff. Create your own stuff at IW, so, mm-hmm. I U W. So, and I recently started working for uh, Benelli, the Italian comic company, writing westerns for them which is a dream I've had for a long time. So, wow. you know, I, I stay busy. But yeah, you- if, if, if there was an opportunity to go back to the DCU and play around a little bit, yeah, that'd be fun.
0: Given that you like to kind of plan ahead, and as you said, like, you, you work ahead, you work fast, and you already have to issue nine on Bane Conquest um what is it like creating a, you know a maxi series here essentially a 12 part story uh that kind of does have a beginning middle and end do you still kind of want to like I, I guess you can't actually answer this in a lot of ways but do you find yourself wanting to set up what you do in, in the next story or are you kind of keeping it concise with just those 12 issues how do you approach it as opposed to what you've done in the past with monthly books
1: well, Graham and, I, Graham and I do a lot of talking, and this is a real collaboration. Uh, we do a lot of talking about what's going on in the book and everything else. And um, um, he brought up an idea for maybe pos- possible follow-up project, just blue skying, like what if we did this, you know, and he, and he sent me like a two-page treatment for where what, what he thought we should do. And uh, as I was writing issue nine, I thought, well, what the hell, it kind of fits into the story. I sort of put an element from that in this story. And now, if that project never happens, it's fine. The the element fits in this story and everything else. But uh, only only when I handed in the script, only Graham saw it for what it was. It's like this is what we talked about. I'm like, yeah, this is what we talked about. Uh, but you know, the readers aren't going to know what moment that is or what's in our heads. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, I, but I, I but I don't want to write um, one of these events that just continues on into another event. This 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 is standalone. Okay. You know, these 12 issues stand as an epic all by themselves. It's not going to be like, oh, you have to read the next 12-issue thing to find out what happens next. Mm-hmm. But we are thinking ahead.
0: What is it about your collaboration with Graham that kind of sets it apart from other collaborations you've had in the past? What makes you guys as a team special? Well, Graham is a
1: Batman expert. I mean, you, you can't stump this guy. He, you know, I thought I knew Batman until I started working with Graham. And uh, he, he really, he loves the character. He's got a huge Golden Age collection. I mean, he knows it backwards and forwards. And uh, so, you know, he keeps me honest on the on the whole thing. And then, you know, uh, because we closely collab- collaborated on the creation of Bane, we're, we're of one mind, which certainly helps. We're also brutally honest with one another. You know, if I think an idea sucks or he thinks an idea sucks, there's no hesitation. It's like, no, we're not doing that like that at all. And, you know, we, we work around it. But, you know, generally, you know, 99.9% of the time, we're totally on the same page about, about what to do. And, you know, I think we share the same bitter sense of humor. It's Bane.
0: <laughs> when you guys created Bane, I mean, I guess you... I think we talked about this in the, in the last uh, conversation, but now I'm blanking on it, so forgive me. And forgive my listeners who've already heard me ask this. Um, you know, what... What was that creation of the character look like? Like, how did that concept come about? And obviously, this was this part of already knowing that Nightfall was coming? I'm trying to remember the chronology,
1: but... Well, Nightfall was already rolling along, and and we had a... I mean, a lot of people don't realize when they were reading Nightfall that we were leading up to Nightfall months before Nightfall started. (laughs) You know, uh, know, wearing Batman down. There were all these elements that were setting him up for for this, this downfall. And um, when we started it and we started those initial issues um, of, of basically Batman getting worn down, uh, we, uh, we had a placeholder villain that we knew was going to break his back, you know, put him out of commission for a, a year or two years. And, um, but we didn't really talk about the, the villain at that first summit. And, and then as he got closer to the day uh, that we were going to reveal who this guy was, obviously we had to create him and uh, we held sort of a mini summit uh, just to create the villain and it, 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 we didn't get very far and I, I was of the mind that, that this character had to be really popular this character had to click for Nightfall to work because he was in the middle of it he was the center of Nightfall and if Bane didn't click or his, at, his, at, his, at the time his name was Doc Toxic that was his working name um, <laughs> Nobody liked it. It was never seriously considered, but we we refer to him as Doc Toxic, and he had the click. and and I made the argument so stridently to Denny O'Neill that he said, "Well, if you think it's going to be so damn hard, you do it." And so, uh, you know, I went off with the general idea that he was Batman's intellectual and physical equal, and that he would have he would be an evil Doc Savage, which meant that he would have uh, henchmen, recognizable, charismatic henchmen. And uh, which I which I knew Graham would love because he's a big Doc Savage fan as well, and so basically I went home and I thought, well, what would make this guy work? And I always think that a villain needs some hook to make them sympathetic, so that they're not just bad for evil's sake. They have a reason for what they're doing, and in their mind, what they're doing is right. And I thought, well, you know, what if he was uh, born to serve his father's prison term, life prison term, which you know happens in countries like North Korea and places like that. So, um, And from there, it was like a little bit of Man in the Iron Mask, and a little bit of a tough guy prison story, and he just sort of grew from there. And uh, Denny was the one who suggested that he be from Santa Prisca, which was an island that was already established in Batman continuity, and also that he'd be addicted to Venom, which was already in continuity. So uh, that part of the story is pretty much set, baked into the, what I had to do. And then Graham came up with the idea that Santa Prisca—it's a Caribbean island off the Central American coast. Why don't we go for a Mexican wrestler book? And at that point, we were off to the races. And you know, I wrote that first Vengeance of Bane thing, and you know, Graham and Eduardo killed on the art, and uh, the, the character clicked. Everybody liked it, so it worked. You know, uh, you know uh, we sweated it. We really sweated it out, but but the character worked.
0: It's interesting that, like you know, as you said, like if Nightfall really would have gone completely differently if you guys hadn't done the work to make Bane such a compelling character, because I can't even imagine what that storyline would have looked like without having such a compelling lead in the middle. Yeah, because I mean, we we were coming
1: off of the death of Superman. Superman just been killed by basically a a giant space thug, you know. (laughs) uh, Who, yeah, while it was an epic battle and it's a very dramatic story. Uh, That character, I can't even remember the character's name. He's he's not very memorable, and nobody really ever wanted to see him back again. Uh, You know, he was a cypher, you know, which was fine. You know, that's, you know, he was kind of a, you know, uh, monster of the month, the the kind of character that Kirby would have show up, you know, beat up the Fantastic Four for two issues. Uh, And and that was fine. But, you know, Batman called for something else, not just a brute. Otherwise, we could have just used Killer Croc.
0: That's true. Who actually did, sh- a memorably, you did get to write some good Killer Croc during Nightfall.
1: Oh, yeah, everybody was in Nightfall. That's, that's another reason for its success. It's a classic Batman story. It's got all the great villains in it, and we, which we were encouraged to go hog wild with.
0: Now, actually, I have a few, I have, well, actually, I had a lot of listener questions, but uh, one was, uh, aside from Bane, who is your favorite of Batman's rogues to write? Um,
1: the Riddler, even though he's hard to write. You know, at least to do a Riddler story that satisfies my criteria, he's very hard to write, which is why I, I, I didn't write him that much when I was on the book. But I love the Riddler. I, I love him ever since I saw Frank Gorsham mm. as the Riddler. He's just this an awesome character. And I love that template. That they, I love his modus operandi. But boy, it's it's not easy to write. No. To make those <laughs> make those riddles work, and every time I I had I had so many Riddle books. And they weren't—they weren't even helpful because I still ended up having to make up half the riddles myself, and that's like torment.
0: Wow, that—that would be a lot of work (laughs) to make it. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was probably a
1: lot more work than you know than I put into any other stories because um, you know Graham and I did that—that—that like three or four parter uh, that was to me the, the, the my ultimate classic riddler story. But man, I was tearing my hair out. It took me two years to come up with basically the theme. Wow! And when I explained the grand was based on baseball scoring, he just looked at me like,
0: You're
1: "Out of <laughs> your mind! <laughs> how, how are we supposed to make that dramatic?" But we did.
0: Wow! So. Um, was there ever a villain you wanted to write but never got the chance to? Specifically, um, specifically Batman villain.
1: Going back to the '66 show, I would have. I, I asked over and over again, why could I have? Um, the bookworm. Ah, so I thought that was a great. That was so much like a classic Batman villain. That was one of the few that they created for the show that really would have fit right in to Dick Sprang and Bill Finger's era in the fifties. But uh, they, 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 we couldn't touch them at the time, and plus Denny, Denny despised the '66 show. So oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He really hated it.
0: I guess it'd be a lot harder to integrate. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. When I, whenever I would make references to the show, I would have to hide them in, in the script because I mean, I, I to this day I don't think Denny understands why I named the bridge across Gotham Harbor the Westward Bridge <laughs> for Adam West <Westenberg> <laughs> and Ward. And then I, I did a scene where um, Batman basically does a bootleg turn in the Batmobile, and Robin gets thrown up against the windshield, and he says, "You know, you could warn a guy next time." So <laughs> it was little things like that that made me happy.
0: Um, was the uh, who was your favorite of Batman's quote unquote lamer villains
1: uh, Calendar Man was fun the right. Mm. Um, he's pretty darn lame uh, <laughs> and, and Graham and I enjoyed revamping Firefly who was a terrible character mm. just idiotic um, but we kept everything about him he was a special effects man or anything else we just turned him into a pyromaniac you know with all the uh, the, the, the freaky sexual tinges that that has
0: yeah well he definitely made him um he was definitely more fearsome i think more so than when anyone else had written them. when you guys wrote him
1: yeah yeah because i remember you know reading him in one of the batman 80 page giants when i was a kid even when i was a kid i thought god this guy's so lame he just uses (laughs) he just uses lights and his his costume was ridiculous you know he had an antenna well what did they they did nothing they were just part of the outfit.
0: Um, And
1: he had had FF on his chest.
0: That's right. (laughs) Just in case anybody forgot his name. (laughs) (laughs) This is a little bit of a stranger one, but uh, what's your favorite piece of Bane merchandise that you've seen?
1: Oh, wow. There's been so many cool things. Um, There's a Bane uh, flash drive that's really cute. Hmm. And um, actually, Sideshow has an awesome statue coming up. Of of classic Bane standing with his one foot on the bat signal. Oh, nice! That I'm anxious to see. But yeah, i got I'm looking at a shelf of Bane action figures here. There's like dozens and dozens of
0: them. <laughs> Your house looks like a but shrine I really to like, Bane. They, they
1: made a plush um, teddy bear Osuito recently in the Bane costume. That's that's pretty cute.
0: That seems like such a weird juxtaposition. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I don't know whose idea that was, and we had to remind them that, that we created that character. You
0: know,
1: he just didn't come out of nowhere.
0: No, uh, what other portrayals of Bane have you have you enjoyed in other media that haven't been comics?
1: I I love the first his first appearance on Batman animated series mostly because Henry Silva did his voice. I was just so thrilled by that because when I was a kid, like Henry Silva was one of the baddest of the bad guys, <laughs> and uh, it, it was so cool to hear his voice coming out of him. But uh, and generally the, the through all the animated series, I've really enjoyed his portrayal.
0: How about live action.
1: <laughs> um, I mean, I gotta say, Dark Knight Rises, because you know that made him a household name, and it was closer to what Graham and I created. I thought he looked cool in the Schumacher movie, but of course, it was moronic, and they just treated him like a dumb, dumb thug. But yeah. uh, but but you know they, you know they made a lot of toys. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes,
0: they
1: did. So it sort of helped cement him into canon so that next, uh, next time that uh, they needed a, a badass uh, they, they, got, they came around to Bane and I really think in the Nolan movies they knew they had to end the trilogy on, on a purely action film
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know Bane is that's it man he's the number one candidate. if you want to knock down drag out fight with Batman he's the guy
0: that's true uh, and,
1: it- yeah, Killer Croc has been a step too far into the Science fiction, weird realm.
0: Yeah. So, if uh, if DC made a, a Nightfall animated movie, who would you prefer to voice Bane if it was done today? Oh, Danny Trejo. Hmm. That actually that that would be awesome.
1: Yeah, I, he actually has voiced it before, and he sounds great.
0: Oh, has he? Which which yeah. version? I
1: think I, I'm not sure. I think in one of the computer games.
0: Oh, really? Wow. Danny
1: Trejo does does
0: his voice. Wow, well, I'm remiss because I'm sure a listener is being like, "Of course he has him." Like I I didn't realize yeah, yeah. that. <laughs> I don't play the game,
1: so I don't follow it, but I know, I know I've know, i heard his voice as Bane. So, wow. yeah, that, that would be a... I mean, that's it, man. He's got the timber and, obviously, the accent. And, uh, you know, nails
0: it. Now, uh, as I said, we have a lot of listener questions, so I'm going to dive into a bunch of those, if you don't mind. Sure. All right, so we have... Uh, I- I think it's Gigrantor, asks uh, what are your opinions on political correctness in comics and how has this changed since you were writing comics in the 80s and 90s?
1: Well um, you know we didn't have to be so careful back then. You know, Everybody's so easily offended and it's not so much political correctness as political content I mean I think it's pretty well known that I'm politically a conservative but I've never put that in my work and I never want to Uh, not in an escapist book anyway Uh, Not in in superhero mainstream superhero fiction. I I have no desire to put my politics in because who 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 cares? Mm -hmm. You know, um, my 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 opinions don't overshadow Batman or Superman or whatever character I'm writing. So um, you know, I I prefer they just leave the politics out of it. And uh, the recent spate of you know highly political comics, you know, highly opinionated, almost op-ed comics, is kind of disturbing. because you're just ticking off half your audience I mean, the country's pretty much divided 50-50 with a lot of people who simply Don't care, and you're even ticking off the people Who don't care, mm. because they, they don't want To see politics in the work. they don't want to be lectured to So I think just, you know Stay the heck out of it, If you want to do a political comic Do a political comic, but keep Batman, Superman Spider-Man, and the rest Keep them out of it, people don't read comics For that reason, and, and sales are Showing it, particularly at Marvel They're just rejecting it Mm-hmm uh-huh. And I can see why. You know, it's just unpleasant. I didn't like politics even when I was a kid. I remember, uh, I think it was Gary Friedrich wrote an episode of Daredevil, which he showed the police beating up hippies. And <laughs> I, I wrote a letter to Marvel, and I got a postcard back from Stan uh, saying, you know, well, we're sorry. We'll do better next
0: time. You know. Oh. I just didn't think the, the comic book was the place for that. For sure. Well, and uh, so this uh, this listener also wanted you to know that uh, – he loved your adaptation of the Hobbit.
1: Oh wow, that was a blast work. That was a blast to work. Well, Cruel though, I had to cut it so much.
0: Well, no, like what, unlike what, Peter Jackson, I had to cut a lot. Of that stuff. that was kind of his comment was that he preferred yours to what he thought was an overly bloated version of the Hobbit by Peter Jackson.
1: <laughs> I had to cut out Bjorn. Bjorn was my favorite character in the book, and I had to cut him out because there's simply no room. So.
0: How how long was that project?
1: Um. I think it comes out to like one hundred and twenty four pages, okay. but there was a lot of um, like you know almost splashes and stuff I mean there had to be eye candy in it mm-hmm. so you had to leave room to, to show off that art and uh, so so deep cuts had to be made I, I must have read the novel sixteen times and um to, to as a testimony, I still love the novel uh, but you know going through and cutting out stuff and, and you know telescoping events it was it was tough
0: hmm uh, listener Shagmu asks, uh, what kind of plans did you have for Robin and Batman and the Outsiders before uh, those books were kind of derailed by Batman R.I.P.? I, I, I,
1: had, I can't really remember where we were going with Robin because there was so much discussion back and forth I kind of got lost in what it is they wanted. But Batman and the Outsiders, uh, if anybody remembers what I was doing, um, I think I got to the point. See, I can't remember what was published. And what, I, I wrote a, I wrote a lot more than was published. Mm. I wrote way past, you know, <laughs> my cancellation point. Um, but they, but the the outsiders discover that an alien race has created a, a subterranean lake beneath the surface of the moon for whatever reasons they don't know, and so they recruit Aquaman, take him to the moon. And he dives in, you know, they, they, they insert him into this subterranean ocean to see what's what and what the aliens are up to. And basically, they're breeding aliens for an invasion of Earth, hmm. you know, sort of breeding them locally. <laughs> 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 so, uh, I can't remember a lot more details than that, but there, but there was a lot of relation stuff and everything else that I had worked out. There was a lot more, hmm. you know, I really I, I had a lot of uh, long-ranging plans because I thought that's what ensemble books called for you know, a more complex storyline.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, listener, Mr. Raffles first wanted to ask, uh, is there, is there any chance for a way of the rat omnibus? Cause they heard about it on uh, the previous podcast we did and they were immediately sold on it. Oh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean,
1: you know, it's at Marvel Disney owns it. Um, they've gotten close to making a film a few times but I don't know if they're ever going to collect any of that cross gen material uh, Way of the Rat would be good because we did get to close the store, kind of close the story out mm-hmm. uh, with issue 24 that would be a nice fat book
0: I mean uh, of, of, of most of those cross gen books it was more insulated and kind of stands on its own better than most of them did yeah, I resisted the Uber story
1: on <laughs> almost everything I wrote. I really didn't, because uh, when I did El Cazador, it had nothing to do with the rest of what was going on across Gen, uh, and happened in the real world, uh, not some planet where there were pirates. Uh, but yeah, Way of the Rat, we pretty much made self enclosed. And God, it, it's such a gorgeous book. Such a gorgeous. Uh, Jeff Johnson, just uh, that was a true collaboration as well, I mean, because we were on site with one another and created the book together. Mm. Uh, he made such a a, a rich visual world for that book that you know there's not a lot of artists could have done what he did that really made it click and we really bounced off each other well and boy he did some funny stuff too there's a lot of laugh out loud stuff in there and you know you can write funny but if the artist isn't on board with you it's not going to work but there's one page that still makes me laugh just by looking at it's just just the visuals he put together on it it's (laughs) just hysterical which page was that? there's a page it's a double page spread and Popo we see Popo in combat for the first time so they got this they got this macaque this monkey with this long tail and I said you know he basically goes Bruce Lee on these guys you know knocking everything around well instead of doing like the standard jump kick you know doing a monkey version of Shang-Chi Jeff freezes him in the middle he's upside down in the middle of a backflip and it's just so funny I mean it's like it's it's such a monkey move you know, he doesn't have him imitate a human. He has him act like a monkey. And he's just upside down with the tail flying. It just cracks me up every time I see it.
0: <laughs> so I, I think I actually, now that you mention it, I do remember that.
1: <laughs> yeah, he gave me the original before he left CrossGen, which I was just, I treasure it.
0: That's awesome. Um, from the same well listener, uh, would you ever want to write Batman again? Or have you told all the stories you wanted to tell with the character? No, I
1: mean, you know, I, could, I could go back to it again. I'm really, I, I mean, I didn't stop writing Batman because I was done because I was out of stories. There's there's a lot of reasons. You know, I was on it for 11 years. It's a long time. It doesn't mean I'm finished. Yeah. You know, especially after the break. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) had had some time to rest from Batman. (laughs) Uh, But I love Gotham City. That was, to me, Gotham City was the most compelling character of all of it. Just City itself.
0: And that kind of, you know, comes out in the fact that you wrote so many different Bat-related characters and it's that in and around Gotham that kind of speaks to that.
1: Yeah, and I tried. I, I worked real hard, and Graham was a big help. with I, To make it, to do repeat locations and go back to places again and try to establish a sense of a real city. And, uh, you know, we, we worked really hard at that. And uh, I think it paid off. I mean, it, it seems, to me, the city seemed very real.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, question from a, a listener named Shatzi. He says, uh, I read Robin Annual Number no. 5, which is Legends of the Dead Earth theme, and for the first time, uh, some of the story elements look like they were inspired by classic sci-fi movies such as Logan's Run and Soil and Green. Were any of these sci-fi movies and or others inspiration for this future Robin story? Uh, I believe that was art by Flint
1: Henry. So all bets are off, Flint is a... Uh God only knows what influenced Flint's <laughs> visuals on that stuff. He, he's uh, he's a madman. And, uh, you know, he crammed that book with so many images that you could basically say, you know, he just took all of sci-fi and fired it through a funnel. What's <laughs> of those pages?
0: Alright, moving on then, uh, from the same uh, listener, I wanted to know, how did you get involved in writing Team 7, and what did you enjoy about writing it? Um...
1: Jim Lee knew that I was um, that I would do the homework on the military stuff, but I was comfortable writing the military stuff, and they wanted it to have a, a more military than superhero feel. And uh, he just suggested me, and they showed me this guy Aaron Wiesenfeld's art, and I'm like, yeah, why not, you know? And and we just went for it. I, I gotta say, I, ne- I never I never had a complete full grasp of that whole universe, the Wildcat universe and the rest of it. But I think that's true of a lot of it, uh, especially early image material. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not the only writer to say Hey, what the hell's going on here? You know?
0: <laughs>
1: so I just kind of like went my own way with it and um, and uh, kind of made it more zen-like than I normally would a story mm-hmm. just because I was kind of vague on what they wanted. <laughs> but, you know, but, but I had Wiesenfeld to back me up and, and we collaborated pretty close on that. And, um, you know obviously it worked out cause people really liked it I mean mm-hmm. I, I sign a lot of them when I go to appearances
0: Now, I mean I, I think I've probably asked you this before but when you do sign things at appearances I mean what's the kind of the, the not the stranger but the stuff that you're um, pleased to see that's not always there I mean I'm sure you s- sign more than your fair share of Batman related material so what when you see it are you kind of happy to see it
1: I, 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 I did a uh Uh, uh, free comic book day last weekend and a guy brought uh, issue 66 of the NOM
0: and it's
1: probably my favorite story I ever wrote it's a story that came out of me all in one sitting I wrote 22 pages without getting up out of the chair and and, uh, it was really cool and he had no he didn't have any other NOM issues just that that one mixed in with a bunch of Robins and Punishers and stuff like that so that was cool and just to see some of the older stuff you know like wow you really Really went back into the long boxes for this one. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a kind of a uh, you know trip down memory lane.
0: What was it about but that? that?
1: But that's the one that stands out. And then I got another guy who brings me Savage Sword of Conan all the time, and that's cool.
0: Yeah. So. <laughs> what uh, what was it about that issue of, of Nam that kind of that kind of just poured out of you in one sitting? Like I I haven't read it. I that's a little bit before my time in terms of being able to find it easily. Um, so what was it about that? that issue that really just spoke to you and, and again, that you were able to kind of just get it out in one sitting, that it was a story that almost like you were needing to get it out, that you were needing to tell it?
1: Well, it was was, um, all in one issue, all complete. I mean, the character I introduced, we never see again. He's introduced just for that story. And um, he's a poor kid from, you know, some farm state, and his parents lose their farm for back taxes. And, uh, his dad has to sell everything. And one of the things he sells is, is, uh, the boy's Winchester, which is his most prized possession. And, um, so the, the, kid grows up and joins the Marines and he goes to sniper school and he's an awesome sniper. So they send him to Vietnam as a sniper and he's kind of a, you know, withdrawn, and everything else. This guy is not an extrovert. And, um, When he gets to Vietnam, they tell him that he's going to be like a free-range sniper uh, going out and finding targets. And the targets they most want him to go after are uh, Viet Cong tax collectors. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's the only time in the story we see him smile. And and he goes after the Viet Cong tax collectors, uh, nailing them over and over and over again until he basically becomes a legend. And, um, you know, at the end of the story, it just says they gave him back his Winchester. And you know, a story I think we've all shared our frustrations with the
0: IRS. <laughs> so I really felt that one, you know, because
1: when I became a freelancer, you know, when you work for a living, and I've, I've had every donkey dead end job you can imagine, you know, they take the taxes out of your paycheck. Well, when you're a freelancer, you got to write that check every year. <laughs> and that brings you a whole new understanding of, of how much they're dipping into your life. And so I think all of that frustration came out in that story.
0: What issue number was this again?
1: Was number sixty-six as a Michael Golden cover?
0: Wow, um, I, I'm, and I'm sure we've talked about this before in the past, but you know, what was it? What was it like writing the Nam book? Because you you actually had quite a bit of a run on that.
1: Yeah, well, well, when when, when Doug Murray and Don Daly had their falling out, which so I never quite understood that what that was about. You know, Doug left the book. Don offered it to me. I didn't feel right because I'd never served and I, I didn't go to Vietnam. Uh, you know, uh, I, I came of age in 72, and the lottery had ended. You know, they weren't drafting guys anymore. And uh, even guys I knew that joined ended up going to Germany. They weren't—they were, just weren't sending guys to Vietnam anymore. So I missed out. <laughs> missed out. I, I thought it's a bullet, <laughs> I didn't go to Vietnam. So, uh, you know, I'm not ashamed to say that. I mean, who wanted to go? So, actually, I had a friend who wanted to go, but he was nuts. But, but uh, so I didn't feel right about it. And Don said, well, call Larry Larry Hamm, who was a Vietnam vet And was my editor And was instrumental in creating the NOM series And uh, he said, call him you know, See what he has to say So I called Larry and I said, look, this is what they offered me I don't feel right, I'm not a vet, they should find a vet to write it And Larry said, you'll do the homework I know you'll do the homework And I know you respect our military You're not going to do anything that disses the guys You know, do anything negative or anything like that Because you'll do the homework, which I did and uh, I talked to hundreds of vets I mean, Wayne Van Zant was a Navy veteran he was drawing the book and he introduced me to dozens of guys and uh, we would talk on the phone and, you know, they would either give me story ideas or I would run my story ideas by them to make sure they were authentic and then I did tons and tons of reading hmm. so, uh, my friends would, would, would just tell me hey, hey, talk Vietnam and I would just rattle off, you know jargon you know Mm-hmm. Sentences of, of Vietnam gobbledygook. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was the, the, the feedback you got from people who actually did serve? Like, did you hear get letters from people? Like, what was, was their feedback?
1: Yeah, I never got anything negative. Never got anything. You know, the thing I learned was is that you know the one thing that was true about all Vietnam vets is that none of them agreed with each other about anything because the war was so long. Mm. It changed in nature from from one phase to another. And I remember I wanted to do a story where Montagnard tries to betray a long-range patrol. And uh, I told this to a veteran. He got, he got incensed. He got angry. He said they would never do that. They were loyal to a fault. They would never have done that. And about a year later on the book, I was telling another guy, you know, well, this other guy was telling me the Montagnards would never betray them. And he said, ah, they sell us out for a dime.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, so I never did the story because I thought, well, you know, I'm not sure where we stand here. But, but I never got anything negative, like that could never happen or that was ridiculous, I mean mm-hmm. I really tried to hew to uh, the feel, I mean I, 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 in, in my novels I have a lot of military characters and, um, I, and I talk now to guys coming back from Afghanistan, I talk to a lot of guys coming back from Iraq and one, one marine vet did three tours in Afghanistan and he read the books and he said you, you write just the way we talked and I mm-hmm. thought that's, that's all I need. Yeah, that's that's the best thing I could possibly hear that I didn't get it wrong.
0: What do you think it says about? It's always interested me that a book like the Nam existed at all. Like, I mean, I, I'm born in '83, so obviously I'm a, I'm a different generation. But it's just interesting to me that there there ever was a book. I mean, it ran for you know what six, seven years. Um, yeah. You know, the, what, what I, I guess I'm, I'm curious. What was the feeling around the offices at the time? How did this book exist? Um, what was the focus on it? Because it definitely is very different, obviously, from what you know, typical Marvel Fair is.
1: Well, it came out of a magazine, Larry you know, he Larry brought back Savage Tales as a Western and war anthology book and basically put Doug Murray and Michael Golda together to do books about the Vietnam experience you know, which Larry was interested in because, as I said, he was a vet himself. And he thought it was about time, you know, and the movies were beginning to show Vietnam as well uh, and take a, you know, an unjaundiced view at, at the war. And he thought it was about time the comics did it too. And I think just sheer force of will, Larry was always sort of outside of the Marvel mainstream because he was doing the Conan books and he was writing G.I. Joe, which was their best-selling title at the time,
0: mm.
1: uh, and, you know, outselling X-Men, which gave him a certain amount of juice. And he wanted to get edgy, you know, and uh, he came up with the nom and, you know, the the response was terrific. I mean, people really liked the book and how you see it. It ran for quite a long time, even though conventional wisdom would have said this is this isn't going to be popular subject matter. And And it was a very serious book that didn't shy away from the controversies about the war and showed you, you know, you know, it wasn't a, you know, Combat Happy Joe's kind of book.
0: No, definitely it, was, not.
1: it was it was you know a lot of times it was a downer, uh, but, but it was honest and you know showed uh, showed our guys in, in the light that you know they they were in a noble fight. They were you know they were courageous. Everything just like any other war and, and deserving of um, of respect for for you know the sacrifices they made, which was Larry's whole thing. That's at the core of GI Joe. Even you know that that you don't you don't show our guys in a bad light because you know they're doing what they swore to do mm-hmm. so um you know but it, it's all larry i mean that book never would have existed with, without larry behind it i mean that's not an idea marvel would have had on their own
0: do you think um a book like that could exist in today's marketplace but with more modern you know wars or theaters of war or do you think that the time has passed for a project like that or does it need someone like larry Hama to really shepherd it through
1: Well, it just needs someone with the cojones to publish it. I I absolutely think because I mean, remember, you know, most of our business concentrates on the superhero. You know, even though there's a vastly, you know, there's a really diverse amount of material out there, it's still primarily superheroes are the drivers. But once upon a time in the seventies, you know, Sergeant Rock and Haunted Tank, they 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 were the they were the sales leaders at DC. I mean, they you know they way outsold those books and and war books are, are a way to reach the more casual reader I certainly think that a, a, an earnestly done book about Afghanistan Iraq the war on terror would would do very well I mean I know from my time on GI Joe at IDW that all of a sudden my fan base shifted to vets you know mm-hmm. guys back from Iraq and Afghanistan I I did an appearance at a comic shop near MacDill Air Force Base and all the guys came over you know and they brought me a, a a, a coffee mug from special operations that oh, wow. they that they, they wanted me to have and everything else. And, and, you know it's, and, that, and that's how I ended up talking to a lot of vets because of their interest in GI Joe. and uh, but I certainly think not to put down GI Joe, it's a wonderful book and everything else, but a more realistic war book. I think it would certainly go over hmm. uh, because you know uh, the movies about it, the War on Terror are certainly popular. So why not a comic?
0: Um, To shift gears for a second, what are the chances of, this is a listener question, what are the chances of a Joe Frankenstein sequel?
1: Um, You know, it's all about money. (laughs) We're talking to somebody now about uh, a Joe Joe, Frankenstein feature film. Uh, But of course, you know, that's pie in the sky, you know, because, you know. Nine hundred ninety nine times out of a thousand, these things don't go much further than talking. But we are, you know, we are talking with a, a producer and everything about it. So certainly, if something were to happen in the ancillary medium, we, we would go back and do more comics. We want to do more comics, mm-hmm. but That's, it's uh, it's all about the cash.
0: Yeah, it does come down to that often, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did the first one for free, and we just can't do that again.
0: Um, the final listener question we had was. Uh, Doug Mensch is sometimes credited as a co-creator of Bane, and sometimes he's not. Can you s- shed some light on the subject?
1: Well, it was more—it was more Graham and I closeted that created it. Doug's contributions were minimal.
0: <laughs> okay,
1: <laughs> I won't go any further than that. But you know, yeah, sometimes he's credited. Sometimes they remember to put his name on there. Sometimes they don't. <laughs>
0: uh, what was it? Li- I actually, I'll kind of dovetail into this. Uh, what was it like working? On that original, those bat summits, like creating Nightfall, creating, you know, all the events that would come out, out of the mid to late '90s. What was it like being part of those summits and being part of that core bat creative team? It was awesome. I mean, Denny ran a tight
1: ship. You know, he was he was like a Denny's a very shy guy, very reserved guy, doesn't like confrontation. But but when he's into the writing end of it, he's Captain Bly, man. I mean, you just got to listen to him, and and he he told us that he brought. Me, Doug, and Alan together because we were storytellers and we handed stuff in on time and we were passionate about the work. You know, you couldn't find three more different people on the face of the earth. But when it came to Batman, we were all in agreement and we all got along and, you know, we all complimented one another because Nightfall was done in a way that, um, you know, I had to wait on Doug and Alan had to wait on me, you know. So you needed guys that were in that chain. I remember once... um, I think it was Night Quest. Uh, I was on three books. I was on Detective. I was on Robin. I was on Catwoman. Mm. And the the way the schedule fell, my three books were in a row. The next writer couldn't write until mine were done. And so for two months, I had to take three days out. And we, we had little kids at the time. I had to leave the house. I got a hotel room. And did nothing but write an issue a day for three days, and in these marathon sessions. Um, and, and but that's the kind of dedication we all had to this. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's the kind of unforgiving schedule that it had. You know, to keep up with everybody.
0: Oh, for sure. Because
1: you couldn't you couldn't write ahead. You know, you had to write with each other. We were all ahead, but you couldn't write ahead of everybody else. Because it was so tightly plotted. I mean, the whiteboards alone. Jordan Gorfinkle, his hands would be black by the end of the day from the markers writing on the whiteboards.
0: (laughs) Um, With regards to, I mean, you've worked with some amazing artists on the different Bat-related books over the years. Uh, What kind of Batman artist do you wish you'd had the chance to work with, either living or dead, that you think that would have been a great pairing with your work? Wow. Um, Boy,
1: everybody I worked with was awesome. I can't think of anybody that was missing from the bunch I I would have loved to have done a classic uh, Batman sort of Dick Sprang mm. that would have been cool in fact we had proposed a Dick Tracy Batman crossover which K Features was wild about but DC was, was very cold
0: on
1: it would have been done in the old Dick Sprang style
0: why do you think DC so, was cold on it well in
1: any crossover the first question is what's in it for us and uh, I think that DC thought Dick Tracy was, you know... Well, not just a play on words, but he was old hat. <laughs> <laughs> Him and his old hat were old hat. You know, uh, I don't think so. I think it would have been a really cool project.
0: Was this after the Dick Tracy movie had happened or before?
1: I think it was after. I think it was after. But King features would have been, you know, Disney would have had nothing to do with it. King features would have been the controlling factor. We either wanted to do... You know, Dick Sprang inked by Graham, uh, which would, you know, or you know, some other permutation, but really get that that '50s Batman style look, you know, which was obviously grew out of Chester Gould style. So the characters just seem to be destined to be in a story together.
0: Yeah. Now, now that you mention it, it's sad that we haven't seen that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Dick Tracy villains meeting some of the Batman villains,
0: just would have been awesome. Actually, yeah, uh, two great detectives, and yeah, you have what prune face and funny i'm trying to think of them all now
1: oh prune face and the, the, the
0: mole and oh yeah the mole that's right yeah
1: i mean the problem with dick tracy villains they are like punisher villains they all died at the end of their stories but yeah you know this would have been a, a elseworlds kind of thing where they could be alive again um but, but you know flat top and joker you know on the town would have been great
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, I guess this is, this is actually a, a better uh, last listener question. Is uh, How does it feel knowing that you've written more Batman stories than pretty much anyone else and have defined the character for at least a generation of readers? It's, it shocks me because it never
1: seemed like work. Uh, when someone pointed out how many pages I've written, it just st- stunned me because I really didn't think. I really thought I was not that high up on the prolific scale, but, but I am.
0: You know, Because it never seemed like work. It just it was fun excellent and um, what else can we look forward to seeing from you you mentioned a few of your other projects uh, before obviously Bane Conquest but what else can we look for Uh, I have a new novel
1: out called Blooded it's available on Amazon and paper and on Kindle it's a a vampire story it's a one off thing and uh I recently did a uh, fourth book in my Levon on Cade series, which is a vigilante justice Punisher style crime series. And uh, there's others just type my name in on Amazon they all pop up. So <laughs> uh, my, blooded is my twentieth novel and I'm also surprised about that.
0: <laughs> wow, 20 novels. Yeah. did you get yourself get yourself something special to commemorate the occasion?
1: now I just started the next novel. <laughs> so they give me something to work on in between other projects because, you know, I'm always ahead. So I've always got time on my hands.
0: And you mentioned some projects with IDW as well, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I have a creator-owned thing coming out toward the end of the year. I wrote with Scott Beatty called Unprepped. It's a survivalist comedy. It's a miniseries. And uh, it's I think it's going to come out in October or November. Who's the artist on that? It's... Um, Marlon shoop uh he's a frequent archie artist or an awesome storyteller just an awesome storyteller with um, with colors by brett smith and it's it's kind of a different thing for me because it's it's a straight-up comedy so um uh,
0: was that something you know, you'd been itching to do or was it kind of an accident it, that you started it just or? sort of scott and i were talking about something to work on and it
1: just sort of it sort of popped full blown into my head i thought you know what if Will Ferrell and Jennifer Aniston were in a comedy about the end of the world, you know, uh, and, and survivalists? And it just sort of wrote itself. Scott and I were we raced through it. We were we wrote all five issues in a month, just just you know bouncing back and forth off each other.
0: How did you guys decide to work on that project together? Um, I don't we were just
1: looking for something to work on together because we missed working together because we had done you know Robin Year one and, and Batgirl Year One and a few other projects at DC. La- last laugh we planned together mm. and we we missed working together. and uh, you know he said, well, you know, how about a thing about survivalists? And you know he, he proposed the usual you know tough guys, you know, whatever, making it into the world of tomorrow. And I thought, well, what if it was a comedy? And I mean a straight up comedy. You know, about, you know, this suburban family who are not ready for what happens and have to, uh, their learning curve is very sharp. So, uh, you yeah, know, it turned out good and Marlon was the perfect choice. He's, he's a great uh, comedic comic artist, uh, but he got the dra- dramatics right too. It's not done in an Archie style, it's done in a really stark, like almost storyboard style hmm. and he really nailed it and it's, it's uh, I'm real happy with how it turned out. It's, it's very different for me. And IDW is extremely happy with it. So they jumped on it the minute I gave them the you know, elevator pitch.
0: Cool. Uh, I, I was going to leave off there, but I had one last question. Um, how do you feel about or what did you think of the, uh, the recent uh, Nightfall omnibus that must have shown up on your doorway at some point? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, ten of them showed up my door. My, my my mailman was not happy. Um, <laughs> it's it, it's
1: a, it's obviously the best collection ever because it does include some of those lead up issues that weren't necessarily labeled Nightfall or oh, nice. important to the story. So it's got everything in there. And I was shocked at that little five page Bane thing. You know, Bane's point of view breaking into Wayne Manor. I had completely forgotten I had written that. And uh, I had to I had to contact Scott Beatty and I said, "Where did this originally appear? I don't even remember this."
0: Where was it and, from?
1: It, it was uh, from a Secret Origins issue. Oh. Uh, they had asked me to, to, you know, what was Bane's point of view of Breaking in the Wayne Manor just before Batman pops out of the clock. And uh, and they got Eduardo Barreto on artwork, which, you know, just gorgeous.
0: Now, I don't think it's come out yet. Have you received the second volume of the omnibus yet?
1: No, no, that's not out till October, so I won't okay. see them till like, September. Okay. But that, again, I, I think that completes it. That's got... It's just got everything in it. I mean, it's just an awesome package with lots of original art.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think the and big thing for collectors, of, uh, for those who've been buying the collected editions, is I think it's going to be the first time uh, that the search is actually collected in, in this type of format. Because in the three giant uh, paperback volumes that came out a couple of years ago, I'm pretty sure they was that was omitted. They had the crusade, yeah, yeah. but not the search. And the search has kind of been this white whale for people that want to have it collected and want to be able to right. read that story, but have never been able to do that.
1: Yeah, it really was a sprawling epic. I mean, it just went all over the place. Because I I remember at the summits, a couple of summits, we had Jeanette Kahn there because she could answer questions about publication schedules and things like that. She should simply get on the phone Mm. and schedule time at the printing presses. You know, because we had we were just sprawling out all over the place with with that thing. It just uh, took on a life of its own. It was an amazing experience,
0: absolutely amazing experience. And as you said, it's a testament to Denny O'Neill that it was able to be so, you know, kind of flawless because there's so much material, but everything is in lockstep with each other. Yeah, and it's all, I mean,
1: all the dramatic high points were built into it. I mean, it's just a story but it is so rich in stuff that you could do. I mean, the end of that first day, we were like on the edge of our seats, just champing at the bit to get started.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for joining us again, and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Hopefully, not uh, two years next time. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's do a wrap up with the Bane Twelve. Actually, that's a great point. So next year, uh, after uh, the Bane mini sorry maxi series is complete, we'll uh, have you back.
1: Fantastic. I would love that.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, you are very welcome.